I don't know you about you, but that was a little touch of heaven for me to sing those songs. Well, in our sermon series that we are going through, we are working our way through the book of Second Thessalonians, and today is the halfway point. One of the important themes of the book is Jesus' second coming, and today is the third week that we're going to touch on it. Previous two weeks, first week a little bit, second last week a lot, this week we're still connected to it. So here's a summary of what we looked at last week. You can see on the slide, there was a false report about Jesus' second coming. And that false report disturbed the new Christians that were there in Thessalonica. And the false report was that Jesus had already come a second time. Paul responds by saying, no, he hasn't come yet. The rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed before Jesus comes again. In all of this, there will be deception. When Jesus does come, he will kill the man of lawlessness. But some people will refuse in all of this that's going on, actually all the time, since Adam and Eve. Some people will refuse to love God's truth, will take pleasure in unrighteousness, and God will let them choose the deception. Well, that was last week. Today's verses finish the section that we began. So remain seated. Let's read together from the screen. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 to 17. Let's read this together. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and work. Now these verses fall naturally into three parts. First, a thanksgiving in verses 13 and 14, a concluding word or an exhortation that he gives in verse 15, and then a concluding prayer in verses 16 and 17. And you're going to see that Paul packs a lot into these verses. Let's begin with the thanksgiving in verse 13. That reads, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. Sorry, I didn't put the comma in. For you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now the first thing to notice here is that Paul refers to all three persons of God in the verse. We call that the Trinity. Paul gives thanks to God. He's referring to God the Father for the Christians there at Thessalonica. He says that the Christians are beloved by the Lord. Here he's referring to Jesus. And then he says these Christians are being are sanctified by the Spirit. Now, there are multiple places in the New Testament where you see the Trinity, all three persons of God mentioned like this, though the word Trinity is never used. It's a word that the church came up with to talk about the three persons of God. 
And as you look at the Bible, you see that all three persons of God are involved in a Christian's life, in our salvation or our rescue, and also in our daily lives. We see a reference to God's work in the verse where Paul says, God chose you. That that is an action word. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. So we're going to talk about choosing in just a minute. Uh, we're going to first, and then we'll talk about first fruits after that. So God chooses or adopts every Christian. And he does this because he chooses to. It sounds a little, repun- a little redundant, a little circular. But basically what God says is, I chose you because I wanted to. And what he's doing is making the case and being very clear, there wasn't anything in you that made me choose you. There wasn't anything worthy in you. God chooses us because he wants to. We're going to talk in a minute. That actually can sound very strange to people, the way that I just put that. But God chooses us, and one of the words he uses to help explain is adopting. Jesus is the one that purchases that adoption and purchases our forgiveness through his life, death, and resurrection. And then the Spirit is the one who is put in each Christian and is teaching and convicting and encouraging. So here in our verse, Paul uses the word choose. In Ephesians 1, he uses the word adopt. He talks about adoption clearly in Ephesians 1, that God adopts people spiritually to be his children. But remember how adoption works. The parent chooses the child. It's the same way with God. He's choosing people. He's the one who chooses. So there is an idea that goes along with this or corresponds to this. It is both comforting and humbling. We are passive in our adoption, if you're a Christian, and we're also passive in our regeneration. That's a church word that means that God gives new life. New Testament states it even more strongly, and we get why it is we need not just adoption but regeneration because New Testament tells us, God tells us, that we are spiritually dead before God gives us new life, new spiritual life. Now, I said that's comforting and humbling. It's comforting because it means that if you're a Christian, your spiritual life doesn't depend on you and your efforts. Doesn't, for me, it doesn't depend on my efforts. But it's humbling because it means that you and I are totally lost, totally helpless, and totally spiritually dead on our own. And what's amazing in all of this is that God chooses anyone to adopt Because he makes it very, very clear that none of us deserve to be chosen and forgiven. And you know what? That's hard on the ego. Okay, that's tough. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Well, let's talk about first fruits. In the Old Testament, and again, that's another word that we don't use at all today. In the Old Testament, God designated a holiday to celebrate celebrate the first crops that came in each year called the first fruits. And the first fruits, since they were the first of the crops, were kind of like a promise of more crops coming. And remember that back then they did not have the food storage ability we have today. So they were counting on crops coming in every year. 
And so if there was a famine and, and the crops were poor or there were none at all, that meant trouble. Yes, they had some food stored aside and set aside and things, but not a lot. And so having the crops come in was something to give God thanks for. And so the Jews were commanded to bring the best of their first crops as an offering to God, a way of saying thank you to God for what he had provided. And Paul takes that word from the Old Testament and he applies it to the Thessalonians, to the Christians there. And he says, you are the first fruits to be saved in Thessalonica. And so I believe what Paul is doing in our verses is he's encouraging the Christians. Now, it's important to remember the context, what we've looked at already. We know that these Christians in Thessalonica are dealing with persecution. There's opposition to them being Christians and to practicing their faith in Christ. And secondly, we already also know that they're dealing with false teaching. So you can imagine that they could easily be tempted to be discouraged. And Paul is saying, look, do you realize what's going on here? Yes, you're the pioneers. You're the, God chose you as the first, but there's more coming. He's going to add more. You're the first fruits. You're the first Christians, but there are going to be more that God is going to add to your church. And Paul says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now, often in the church, we use the word saved or salvation to refer to the first moments of turning to God. And then we just talk about, okay, well, there's salvation and then there's the rest of life. More often when you look at the Bible, you're going to see that salvation refers to the entirety of the Christian life because we have been saved and are being saved. We've been rescued, we are being rescued, and that rescue will continue. And then we're still in verse 13. We see that Paul sanctifies Christians through the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And that word sanctify means to make more holy or to grow more spiritually mature. And you see this idea in 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is Paul writing to Christians. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he says unveiled face. He's saying, if you're veiled, you've got something over your face, your eyes, you can't see. And he says, talks of people who are not Christians, that's our condition naturally. We don't really see God as he truly is. We don't see the world as it truly is. We don't see ourselves rightly. This veil messes everything up. God has removed the veil. We can see Jesus, and we see him through reading the Bible. And as we behold Jesus, if you're a Christian, Christians are being transformed into the image of Jesus to become more like Jesus by the Spirit. And as we become more like him, we become more holy and we grow spiritually, become more spiritually mature. And so the Spirit is working in us, in Christians, to grow us and make us more like Christ. But then he also says we're sanctified by belief in the truth. Well, you and I do not naturally believe the truth that God gives us. We make up our own ideas and we call that our truth. And our culture today encourages us to do that, to make up what we want and call it ours. 
In contrast, God's truth is ultimate and it's universal. And one of the things that that means is that God's word, the Bible, speaks to and critiques every person and every culture made by man. And what you find when you look at cultures is there are some parts, at least in some ways, that line up with what God says in the Bible. And then there are other parts, maybe many parts, that do not. So we've looked at verse 13 and its parts. Now let's put them back together as a whole. In verse 13, Paul is making a contrast. He's talking about the Christians that he's writing to who have embraced God and embraced God's truth. And he's contrasting them to the people he just wrote about in verses 10 to 12, just before what we read. The people who rejected God and rejected God's truth. And so he's comparing the two. Then in verse 14, he goes on. He says, to this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God calls us, God calls people through the good news of the gospel into a new relationship with God where God saves us from ourselves, from our own sinful selfishness and slavery to sin. Now, it's helpful to remember, now, I just said that, and you guys just accepted it. Nobody stood up and said, what are you saying? Talk about that in a second. It's helpful to remember that the word gospel that Paul is using was not a religious word in his day. It was a word that was used by the public relations people. The king or the new political administration would pronounce the gospel, the good news of what's coming because of the new king, the new political administration. Some things haven't changed, have they? Still do that today. We just don't call it the gospel. The church borrowed, the Christian church borrowed the word and said, gave it new meaning, said, all right, yeah, your king has good news. Well, let me tell you about the king of kings, the ultimate king and the news he had that bests any news that you might have. But think about this. The gospel only looks good when you believe the bad news that accompanies it. As the saying goes, I have bad news and I have good news. Which one do you want first? The Bible has bad news and good news. And here's the thing. If you don't believe that the bad news is true, then the good news sounds offensive. It does. And here's the bad news. All of us, left to ourselves, reject God and deserve eternal punishment. Now, that's what God tells us. But you know what? If you and I are honest, we don't always think that's true. And a lot of people around us certainly don't think that is true. Our natural tendency is to say, well, first, I will tell you, I am not perfect. Take that one off the table. But I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as whoever you want to talk about. And if you and I have that attitude or somebody else that we're talking to, let's say that some you get in a conversation about spiritual things with somebody. 
And part of what they're telling you is, you know, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. Give them a warning. So I'm going to tell you God's good news, but here's the thing. You might not like it. Because what he says is, his good news is rescue. But he's, his rescue is from you first. Yes, there's evil out there in the world, but what about the evil in here? What's going to happen then? I heard true account from a man, an evangelist who was getting his hair cut and talking to his hairdresser, barber in, in England. And they were having this conversation and talking about, ended up talking about spiritual things. And she was pregnant and she was saying, I'm concerned for my baby because look at all the evil out there. And he says, yeah, there's lots of evil out there, but what about the evil in here? And she goes, oh, oh, that's good. She stopped cutting his hair, got a piece of paper, and wrote it down. And actually, the haircut took an hour and a half. Because every time they started talking and, and he would say something, she'd go, oh, that's true. She'd stop and write it down. Well, that's the good news. But if you and I don't think that we're that bad, then to say that God's rescuing me from me, that's an insult. So don't be surprised that when, if you have the opportunity, that somebody doesn't like the good news. But now remember this. The good news is news. It is news of what God has already done. It's news of what God is doing and what he has promised to do, which means that the good news is not a to-do list. And why do I say this? Because many churches and many pastors turn the good news into a to-do list. If you will only follow this list and do these things, then you won't be condemned and God will smile at you and like you. And he might give you those things you've been praying for. That isn't how God works. It, it can't work that way. Because when you look at God's standards, going back to Bob whoever that talked about the Ten Commandments, that was Dennis. You look at the Ten Commandments, we can try if we even wanted to try to keep them, but we're going to fail on every one of them because we fail on number one all the time, putting God first. So the good news is news. Then one of the things that Paul says is that, that you're called through the gospel. In Genesis 1, if you look at how God created, God spoke and created everything out of nothing. So, for example, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And I believe that the way that the word called is used here in this verse parallels this idea. It has the idea that, as, that God's spirit takes God's word that you and I hear and read, and it creates spiritual life in the soul of every Christian. He speaks and life comes. And he does this so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord. Now the English language has many faults and many difficulties of all kinds, but here's one of them. Is you singular or is you plural? Yes. It's both. Unless you live in the deep south. 
Well, here and in the Greek, the you is plural. So Paul is saying, so that you all may obtain the glory of the Lord. Or y'all, or to emphasize it, all y'all may obtain the glory of the Lord. The New Testament refers to Christians both individually and corporately. And I'm so glad that we had uh, Bob's talk about the communion of the saints. Because we need that communion. We need the relationships. God's design is for each Christian to be a part of a church family and have real relationships with other Christians where we can both be both comforted and confronted. You see, you and I cannot see ourselves accurately just on our own. We need other people to show us sometimes what's going on in us. And so God's design is for us to be in a church family. And he talks about the fact that we individually and corporately can obtain the glory of the Lord. If you remember from 2 Corinthians 3.18, we just looked at a few minutes ago. We saw that the Spirit of God is working in Christians. And he's working in Christians to make them more like Jesus. Well, Jesus is glorified. He is perfect. The more you and I, if you're a Christian, become like Jesus, the more we obtain his glory or closer to him in that way. And then our ultimate home is heaven where we're done with all the brokenness and the sin and everything else. And there's a sense in which there we're going to share in Jesus' glory. Just remember this picture. He's the light and we're the reflection. So we'll share it, yes, but he's the source of it. That was just two verses. That's a lot. We're going to go a little faster through the rest. We're up to part two, the concluding word or the exhortation, verse 14, uh, 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, by using the word brothers and understanding that Paul was referring to both the men and the women who were Christians in Thessalonica, when he uses the word brothers, Paul identifies himself with the Christians there. Paul does not think of himself as superior. He's not above them as he talks with them. He's not better than they are. And so he uses the word brothers. But as has already been mentioned, because every Christian is adopted by God, every Christian has Jesus as their older spiritual brother, and every Christian has many, many brothers and sisters in Christ, a church family, a spiritual family. So he calls them brothers. There is that communion of saints, communion of Christians, because they have this relationship. But then he says, stand firm in God's truth. And to me, when he says stand firm in God's truth, it implies there are alternative truths, and you have to put that in quotes, that compete for our allegiance. And there are many other alternative truths that compete for our allegiance. Some are religious and some are not. By the way, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Truth cannot be relative. You cannot have two contradictory truths true at the same time. 
that's confusing because I'm using the word truth to talk about things that actually sometimes are not true. They're claimed truths. Often, you may have heard this, I've heard this, oh, oh, you believe that? Oh, well, that's, okay, that's fine, that's true for you. My truth is different. And so what's true for me is true for me, and yours is for you, and they don't have to agree. No. How do we do this, and why do we do this? I think we do this because we inflate the word truth just like we inflate the word need. Here's what I mean. We have lots of things we desire. But if I can, if I can call a desire a need, it goes from optional to required. You know, if I need those last two cookies in the cookie jar, nobody else can touch them. Because my life will not maintain its integrity if I don't get those two cookies. So it's off, you know, it's out of bounds for everybody else. Often we do that with desires. We inflate them and call them needs. We do the same thing with opinions. We take an opinion and we call it, this is my truth. And all of a sudden, if it's a truth, it cannot be fought against. How do you, how do you fight against truth? We inflate it. Except in our culture, we have this what's true for you, what's true for me kind of a thing going on, and nobody has shown that the emperor is not wearing his robes. Okay, It can't work like that. Paul tells those Christians, stand firm in God's truth. Now, to stand firm means that you're not going to be moved, you're not going to be swayed, you're not going to give in to the pressure that is pushing you to turn your back on God's truth. And we all experience that pressure in one way or another in various situations. So then Paul not only says stand firm, but he also says hold to the traditions. Now, I want to talk about traditions for just a minute because often in the Christian church we speak of tradition negatively. And we do in part because in the past the Christian church moved away from God's truth by making human traditions and human practices more important until they were equal with God's truth and then more important than God's truth and the Bible. But traditions, you can also use the word, use the word teachings or practices, they're not bad in themselves if they line up with God's, tr with God's word. And the other thing is we cannot avoid traditions and practices. I know there are some churches that say, you know what? We are a non-traditional church. Well, what ends up happening over time in that non-traditional church? They develop traditions. They just don't call them traditions. And then wherever you are on that, we all have a tendency to, to treat the traditions that we grew up with or the traditions that we're most comfortable with as superior to others. So, for example... This is part of what I think is behind the debate in the Christian church on forms of corporate worship, where some people favor traditional or modern or some other kind of flavor. Part of, in part, it's because of this is what I'm most comfortable with. And I said all that to explain what Paul wasn't talking about. Paul, when he used the word traditions, 
is talking about what he taught the Christians in Thessalonica. And so what he's telling them is, hold to what I taught you. Now he does this knowing that they're going to, they've already had some false teaching come in, and they're going to have more. And so he says, look, remember what I taught you in person? Remember what I taught you in the first letter, and now you're getting my second letter. And again, I think he's doing this in response to the false teaching that came in, and he's saying, what he's saying is, look, if you were there when I taught in person, you remember what I said. At least a couple of you took notes. And so you remember what I said. You've gotten my first letter, and you'll see that it was totally consistent with what I told you in person. Now you're getting my second letter, and you're going to see it is totally consistent with what I said in the first letter and what I told you in person. And what he's doing here is actually a very good practice for all of us. When you encounter a new teacher, whether it's a new pastor, or if you're in a new church, or a Sunday school teacher, or somebody online, you say, okay, what are they teaching? What, why, what do I know from the scriptures to be true? This is the standard. Does what they teach line up with this? If it does, we're good. If it doesn't, get rid of the teacher, not the Bible, and find a teacher that is teaching the Bible. And that's where he's pointing them. This is what I've taught you. And, and Paul didn't come up with this himself either. In the Old Testament, God says through Moses to the people, you've already got... At that point, they already had the first four books, and number five was in process of being written by Moses. It says, you already know what God has said, what God has done. If somebody comes along later and says, hey, I'm a prophet of God, and what they say contradicts what's already been written and said, that claimed prophet is wrong. Get rid of them. That's part two. That takes us to the third part, the concluding prayer, verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's leave this slide up for just a minute and look at what's going on. Paul is praying both to God the Father and to Jesus and look at what God has already done. That's verse 16. God loved us and I've made the case he loved us because he chose to. God gave us eternal comfort. It starts now, and it will go on forever. God gave us good hope. Not talking about our circumstances, because we know we're going to go through difficulties at times, but what's going to be ultimate? A Christian's relationship with God is secure. Not because of how good we are and how well we hang on, but because of God's faithfulness. And then he says all of this is through grace. That is, it's all a gift. It's all undeserved. And then Paul asks for two things. He, he prays for them and he tells them what he's praying. He asks God first to comfort their hearts. We are broken people living in a broken world and we need comfort regularly. We do. Secondly, he prays that God would establish. We don't use this word this way. I haven't heard it any other way except in the Bible, establishes our, their hearts in every good work and word. I believe what he's saying is 
God is, is, work, is working and will continue to work through you to grow his kingdom. He has a plan for you individually and for each church family, and he's going to work that plan. He's going to give you everything you need as you do the work he has called you to. He's going to establish that work. It's going to last as he works through you. Now, this prayer is something you can pray for yourself and you can pray for others. And I want to highlight one other thing. Back th- this year, we are, uh, Dan and I have made this a theme of prayer for the year. And one of the things I did several uh, weeks ago was give a challenge, prayer challenge, to the congregation. And the first part of that challenge was that you and I asked that God would give us his heart for other people. And I believe that in these verses, you see Paul's heart for these Christians at Thessalonica. You see how he cares for them. He, look, you can see what he's praying that God would do. And so you and I can ask for God's heart for others. We can pray this prayer for ourselves and for others. And we need the reminders that we get in these verses every day that God chose to love us, that God chose to rescue us and save us, and he will never turn away from us. We need this reminder first because of our own sinfulness and selfishness that we are confronted with every day, whether we recognize it for what it is or not. And then we also need this reminder when life is hard, and often it is. Yet what we see in this is that God never fails never fails us, never fails his plan. He's never surprised. He never goes, oops, didn't mean for that to happen. No, he's always working. He's always good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this reminder. Thank you for Paul who packed so much into just a few verses. We thank you for you, for loving us, for giving us every good gift, for rescuing us, and for never turning away from us. Lord, we thank you that we can not only look and see these verses and apply them to ourselves, but we can also pray this prayer for ourselves and for others. We thank you for making us a church family of adopted brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we pray that you would work these thoughts, these truths into our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.